Let's open our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5 this morning. Ed? Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a man as an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. For it is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible, for it is light that makes everything visible. This is why it is said, Wake up, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Be very careful, then, how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is God's word. So the way we mark time in our culture is a little bit strange, right? We have this line in the sand where we say uh, there's New Year's Day or a New Year's upon us, right? And it's somewhat arbitrary. Uh, the idea is that 2019, all that came before us is gone, like obliterated. Uh, that's my bitmoji, right? 2019 is gone. Y'all didn't think I had a bitmoji, did you? The older people are like, bitmoji, what the heck is that? That's like an avatar that you send text messages with, right? Uh, kind of looks like me, doesn't it? 20 years ago, yeah. <laughs> um, but the idea is like, wow, 2019 is gone, and we have this brand new year. We wipe the slate clean, it's a new year. And the reason why I say it's arbitrary is because in all reality, nothing really changed. You know, all we did was flip a calendar. And the truth of the matter is, and I'm just being honest, is if you were um, kind of mired in bad habits, December 31st, 2019, uh, you probably brought those habits into January 1st, 2019. If you were stuck in neutral in 2019, you're probably still stuck in neutral, right? Like, the idea is not much has changed. But there's something I like about a new year, and what I like about it is it, it's full of what we see in biblical terms. You know, the God is the God of new horizons. God is the God of new life. Uh, he talks about new wine, that we are new creations. Uh, over and over again, God says, I will take the old and I'll make something brand new. So there's something about New Year's that I think is biblical. And almost every year I do some kind of series to motivate us all because 
even though we can start afresh at any time, and as believers, there's a new work God is always doing through the year, I think people do need a reference point, a jumping off point, and for some reason in our culture, we have this arbitrary time, January 1st, where we can kind of recalibrate and say, God, what do you have for me this year? The other reason I'm a big believer in New Year's is because when I read my Bible, one thing jumps out at me. It's not, it's not the most predominant thing, but it's pretty big, and that is this idea of growth. Healthy things grow. And uh, we are the apple of God's eye. We are the height of his creation. And God wants us to grow, and not only grow um, this year, but every single year. He wants us to grow in grace. He wants us to grow in the knowledge of who he is, the power of the resurrection, the fellowship of his suffering. We are spirit, soul, and body. We should be growing in how we're taking care of our physical frame, our emotional world and space, um, spiritually the things that God is doing in our life. The greatest metaphor in all of Scripture, the most singular metaphor, is a seed. And we don't think a lot about seeds, but you hold a seed in your hand. It's, it, it's remarkable. Scientists still struggle with this. In that little seed is a DNA where you get kind of the end from the beginning. And if you don't know anything about what that seed is, you have to wait until it grows and it takes some time. But, but within that seed, it knows exactly what's about to grow, what the height of it, the width of it, and all that'll be. And so seed is used very early in the Bible. God creates the world in six days, and there's seed, and everything reproduces after its kind. And God comes to Adam, and he says, be fruitful, multiply. That's kind of like an agrarian term. Seed becomes fruitful, and it grows. Fill the earth, subdue it. And then the blessed man in Psalm 1 is someone who's like a tree planted by living waters. And again, this agrarian idea of bringing fruit in every season of life. That's what the blessed man does. Jesus comes along and teaches parables. His most famous parable is the one of the soils. Again, it's agrarian. They could understand it. Where when that seed goes into a good heart, uh, it produces, listen to this, 30, 60, and 100-fold. Those are all growth terms. Peter, when he writes his epistle, 1 Peter chapter 2, he said that as newborn babes in Christ, as those of us with a new cre creation, spirit of God inside of us, we should lay aside all the former things of our past life, the things we just read in Ephesians 5. All deceit, all hypocrisy and envy. And then he says, like newborn babes, which everybody would understand, we should desire the pure milk of God's word. Why? That we might grow. Now, when he talks about babes, he's not saying that this is for people new to the faith. That if you're new to the faith, you read God's word and you grow by leaps and bounds. No, uh, the, the idea is as newborn babes. Now think of the metaphor. Just like a baby would scramble for his mother's breast to survive, we should have that kind of hunger to have unity and oneness with God, the idea that we might grow. Gordon MacDonald's one of my favorite authors. We had him at a men's retreat one year, and he and I have kind of had a relationship, and I just admire the man so much. And he's written a book called The Resilient Life, which I read every year. Uh, he starts out his book by saying, in the great race of life, there are some Christ followers who stand out from the rest. I call them the resilient ones. The farther they run, the stronger they get. They seem to possess these spiritual qualities. A, they're committed to finishing strong. B, they run inspired by a big picture view of life. Three, they run free of the weight of the past. Four, they run confidently. Listen, trained to go the distance. They're not trying to go the distance, they're trained. And they run in a company of a happy few. They live in community. He calls these the resilient ones. And he quotes that 
very famous verse in Hebrews where it says, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles us and let us run with resilience the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus. He's the author and the champion of our faith. And the book is worth its price just for the questions of self-discovery he puts in the book. We'll talk about self-discovery in a minute. Uh, Gordon goes through uh, the decades of our lives and the questions we should be asking. Now, I'm not going to read all of them for you, but I'll read a few. Uh, I think there's a lot of you in your 20s. That's a vital time period. Questions you should be asking yourself are, what do I do with my life? What is it I really want to exchange for my life's labors? If we're going to work for another 40, 50 years, what, what do I want to exchange for that? And around what person or conviction will I order my life? People in their 30s, how far can I go fulfilling my sense of purpose? Who are the people with whom I can walk through life? What does my spiritual look like? Do I even have time for one? You know, you're raising kids, now the job, you have a mortgage. Do I even have time for a spiritual life? Well, let's jump to the 50s because that's where I live. Uh, why is my body becoming unreliable? That's like my number one question. How do I deal with my failures and successes? How can my spouse and I reinvigorate our relationship now that our children are gone? What do I do with my doubts and fears? Will we have enough money for retirement? Let's jump to the 70s. Is there anything I can still contribute? Why this anger and irritability? Is God really there for me? Am I ready to face death? And when I die, will I be missed? What will my legacy be? And the point of bringing this up is the idea we're all growing, right? Like even in our 70s, and by the way, if you're 80, and I didn't read your, you can buy the book, Gordon has something for 80s and even 90s. So the idea is we're always growing. As long as there's breath in our mouth, there should be this desire to grow in the knowledge of God and who he is. So I want to start kind of a mini-series as I've done every year at Calvary to kind of inject in you uh, some thinking that can guide you for 2020, to give you like a clear vision to design your life for the year that's ahead of us. Uh, I've lived my life by a verse in Proverbs that has served me well, Proverbs 29, 18, where Solomon says that without a vision, people perish. Without a vision, people perish. Now, I don't know what it's like to be somebody else. I don't even know what it's like to be me. But since I've been a small child, I always had a vision for what was in front of me. So I went to Catholic grade school, and where I lived, you had to go to the regional Catholic high school unless you went to two private schools. The problem there is, A, you had to pass the test. B, you needed a lot of money, which my family didn't have. But uh, I had a vision to go to the school, and that vision became a reality. And when I got to that school, I had a vision to go to college. I wanted to be a lawyer. I wanted to play professional basketball. Some of those dreams came true. But in college, I met Jesus Christ. And what happened there is God kind of took my vision and kind of merged it with his vision. Kind of gave me a brand new vision for my life. Obviously, I didn't become a lawyer. Obviously, I didn't become a pro basketball player that had nothing to do with God. It was all my lack of ability. Um, but God gave me a brand new vision, and I began to walk that out. Without a vision, people perish. Now, nobody's going to die, but without a reason to get up in the morning, how do you live? When people perish, again, they don't die. They just kind of rust out, get complacent, lazy. Hear about Christians who once loved God, don't go to church anymore, cynical about things. 
I don't want that to happen to any of us. I want 20 to 20 to be our greatest year, not only for our church, but for all of us here. And that's why I chose Ephesians 5. I love this chapter, where Paul lays out this blueprint for life. He says, you are imitators of God. Is that unbelievable? Like, you can really live the life God intended for you to live. Uh, we call this discipleship, right? It's pretty easy. He says in verse 2 uh, that we should walk in love, right? Pretty simple, and he kind of lays out those guidelines. And then in verse 8, he says we should walk in light, lays out those guidelines. Uh, later, he says we should walk in wisdom and lays that out. But I want to draw your attention to verse 15, where he says, see that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise. Look at this, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Redeeming the time. It means to make the most of your time. Time is a currency. We all get the same allotment of time, right? There's 24 hours in a day, seven days a week. How do you redeem time? Now, maybe I'm weird, but I think a lot about time. It's strange to me, this thing called time, like you plan a vacation, and you plan and plan and plan, and then you finally go on it when you get home. It's like you never went, right? We're just... You know, someone once said, if you want to know what it's like to live in water, don't ask a fish. They have no idea. It's just natural to them, right? It's the same with us. We're, we're so locked in the time that, that we, don't even, we don't even comprehend it. It's strange. It makes my head hurt, actually. The more I read about it, the less I feel like I understand. Um, but we're locked in this thing called time. Abraham Joshua Heschel said, a special consciousness is required to recognize the ultimate significance of time. We all live in it, and we're so close to it uh, that we fail to understand it. The world of space surrounds our existence. It is but a part of living. The rest is time. Things are the sure. The voyage is time. And if you're like, Pastor Bob, I don't understand what he's saying. I don't either, and I don't think he understands what he's saying. I think it makes his brain hurt. Time is this strange thing. And yet the Bible says we need to redeem the time. The days are evil. Now, the dominant culture, which we call the world, uh, they have a philosophy of redeeming time. Anybody know what it is? It's a, it's a Latin word. It's very famous. Anybody? Yes, yeah, seize the day. Carpe diem, right? It's Latin. Seize the day, right? Go for the gusto. It's like Nike, just do it. And uh, carpe diem was uh, really made famous in a movie that should be on everybody's top 10 list, Dead Poets Society, right? The young Ben Affleck and uh, Matt Damon are students at this real upscale New England private school, and Robin Williams is their poetry teacher. And uh, Robin Williams tells them to throw out the book on poetry, and he wants them to know the ethos and the spirit of poetry, and he's teaching them carpe diem. He said, we are all food for worms, lads, because believe it or not, each and every one of us in this class is going to stop breathing, grow old, and die. So make your lives as extraordinary as you can. Seize the day, carpe diem. And uh, this philosophy kind of invades our culture. You go into a bookstore, you'll see it in self-help books, leadership books, management books. Uh, someone, when we were turning over the, the decade of the millennium, handed me a book between Christmas and New Year's. And it was called 20,000 Days and Counting. And this guy stumbled upon a widget on the computer where you could plug in uh, your birthday and find out at the millennium how many days you had lived. So he plugged his birthday in and he found out he had lived 20,000 days. To which he said, what have I done with my days? 
And so the rest of the book is how he purposed to live every day to his fullest. Uh, last year, I picked up a book called Die Empty, had kind of the same philosophy. This woman had experienced a real tragic death in her family. Someone young had died. And she went into her studio where she worked, and she put on the board, um, before I die, I want to dot, 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 dot. And when customers came in, they would fill in the blank. And people began taking a Sharpie and filling things out like, you know, I want to sing for millions. I want to write a book. I want to travel to exotic places, kind of like bucket list ideas. And you look at all this material, and it almost looks biblical, doesn't it? You know, the Bible tells us life is short. There's a time to be born, and there's time to die. Life is like a vapor, right? So you think, wow, this really sounds biblical, that we're going to take our one and only life and go for the gusto. Until you get a little deeper and you find out it's not biblical at all. It's not biblical for this reason. Number one, this premise sees the day. At least the worldly concept is designed that this is our one and only life. That no one's promised tomorrow you might get hit by a car or get a contagious disease and die. So you better live life to its fullest because the sand's running out of the hourglass. It's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches God has made everything beautiful in its time. That we go through the seasons of life, right? Ecclesiastes 3, there's a time to be born, a time to die, a time to mourn, a time to dance. That even through the rough patches of life, we can see God's hand. And time's not running out of the hourglass. In fact, the Bible says the key to life is contentment. We don't have to run and do a thousand bucket list things. We can be content in God as he leads us and guides us. God put eternity in our hearts. We're going to live forever is the idea. Second reason why it really doesn't work is I, I would highly doubt that even if you hit every bucket list item, you would find meaning and purpose. Talk to a gentleman who was in his 20s, and he told me his goal was to live in every major city before he retired. So he'd start in Boston, work there for five years, then move to New York, work there for five years, then go to Chicago, L.A., New Orleans, and all that. Now, that's wonderful if that's what you want to do, but I wonder if at the end of his life he'll find meaning and purpose. I know we won't because Solomon didn't, and Solomon got to do more than live in Boston, New York, and Chicago. Like Solomon had it all, and he said it was vanity of vanities. And then I know something about capacity. God has given you and I a capacity to serve him, so uh, if we're not one with God, like right away, we're kind of out of sorts. He's given us a capacity for our lives, and then he's given us capacity to serve others. Those three things aren't met, you kind of leak out and can't find the joy and meaning of life. St. Augustine said, you made us for yourself and our hearts find no peace till they rest in you. C.S. Lewis said, if I find myself a desire with no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation I was made for another world. He said, the books of music in which we thought the beauty was located will betray us if we trust in them for they are not the thing themselves, they are only the scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have never heard, news from a country we have never visited. Again, God put eternity within our hearts. That's why so many of the Psalms, David talks about the Lord filling him with gladness and the Lord being his delight. Now, this isn't a cop-out that we're going to live Monday lives here and then one day we'll be in the sweet by and by. That's not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is the sand is not running out of the hourglass. God has numbered our days. Some of the greatest contributions to the world were made by believers who died in their 30s. 
And they made tremendous contributions. And then what about the people that live with less resources than we have, less resources than people that can go to upscale New England prep schools? There's so many Christians around the world that live on far less than we have. Can they redeem time? Can they seize the day? Absolutely. So as Christians, how do we redeem time? Well, it says in verse 15, we walk circumspectly. The word walk is lifestyle. The word circumspectly uh, is where we get our English word for circumference. Remember that in math to draw a circle? So the person who's wise, the person who's an imitator of God, is looking at the world around them, looking at the season they're in, and then finding out what the will of the Lord is through these times. Could be dark times, could be good times. Think about all the seasons people ought to live in. Think about the Holocaust, think about Germany, think about World War I, World War II. Think about people that take care of parents. Like There's seasons to walk through, and there's wisdom. It says, understanding the will of the Lord. See, that's the key. How does God fit into all this? Being filled with the Spirit, right? Big part of it, the Holy Spirit's our guide, and then kind of living in community, serving one another. When you walked in today, if I went up to you and said, what's your vision for 2020? Most of you would have given me probably like a destination answer. I want to get this job. I want to get into grad school. I want to make this amount of money. I want to meet someone. Human beings have destination disease. We're always trying to get somewhere, never enjoying the process. Um, we got to go deeper than that. We got to go deeper if we're going to really find clear vision. Uh, I was at a conference for a Christian school with my wife in Dallas. Really enjoyed the first two days, and then I got really bored. And uh, started to walk around the vendor area and amuse myself a little bit. And I came to a table where a guy was selling leadership books. And there was a leadership bo book called H3 Leadership. Like, they're running out of titles, so now there's like H3, like, they can't think of anything. And I looked and I told the guy, I said, you know, you're selling this book, you must be passionate about it, but I've read like 50 leadership books, why should I read this one? And he said, well, the author, Brad Lominick, is a strategic advisor, leadership consultant, he worked for Catalyst for 20 years, and that was like the premier leadership conference in the church. So, so I bought the book and was utterly surprised that Brad's whole book was about a sabbatical he had taken after leading Catalyst for 20 years. And what was interesting about that is I was due for a sabbatical in about nine months, so this became like my Bible for a sabbatical. And then I took one more step. I was so moved by Brad's book, I emailed him. He had his email in the back. Now, most of these people never email you back. One day I get an email from Brad, and he gives me his phone number, and I call him. I'm like, Brad, before we talk, why did you email me? He said, Bob, in all I do, I leave 5% for a guy like you. A guy who started a church from scratch, 25 years in, still excited, still vibrant about what God's doing. Brad flew out, spent a day for, with me, did something for our staff. In his book, H3 Leadership, which is be humble, stay hungry, and always hustle, in the be humble part, he talks about self-discovery. This is something I got onto probably too late in life. Self-discovery is where where you start to ask yourself, you know, why did God make me the way he did, and who am I? Now, it sounds somewhat obvious, and it's not staring at your navel, right? Uh, too many people in our culture, even Christians, are trying to find themselves. You're never going to find yourselves, and you're never going to find your identity. You're going to receive it from God. You're going to become pretty clear about why he made you. 
And it takes some self-discovery, like personality tests and spiritual gift tests and reading scripture and on and on and on. Uh, Brad did a little thing with our staff, and he would say, okay, what's your calling? And uh, one of our younger staff would raise their hand and say, well, I'm called to be the youth pastor at Calvary. Brad said, no, that's your assignment. What are you called? Who are you? Calvary Chapel's your assignment. Youth pastor's your assignment. You can teach kids anywhere. Your assignment might change. What's your calling? As he's, he's driving kind of at this. And, you know, as I got engaged with Brad and realized what I had walked through and what others had written, um, I began to understand how clear vision works. And it works like this. There's always something that precedes vision. There's always something God's doing before the vision is clear in your life. When you read the Bible, you'll find out something about God. He's not great at instructions. He really isn't. He's also not really good at giving you the whole plan. The greatest vision ever was given to Abraham. Father of many nations. Like, your descendants will be the sand of the seashore and the stars of heaven. I mean, it is like a vision to die for. So you know what God says? Again, not really great on instructions. Abraham, leave your father's house. Leave your country. Leave everything you know. Uh, where are we going, God? To a land I will show you. He just rolls it out. And he rolls it out slow. Noah's told to build an ark. He's never given the end game, right? And you can look at almost everybody in Scripture. And, and when I look at all that I read in Scripture and, and I look at my own life, here's what I've discovered. God is far more interested in my growing than where I'm going, okay? Even in our church, God is more interested in our growing than wherever he's taking us, wherever we're going. And, and, and this is where people get everything upside down. They're, they're so filled with destination disease. You know, young Church leaders, right? And there's a big church planning movement today. If you're not aware of it, start new churches and build teams and all that. And I look at some of these guys and they look like bakers to me. It's like they're baking a pie. Uh, if I get a team together and this guy does this and this guy does that, and we have small groups and then we do a men's retreat. We put, we put all these pieces together and we'll bake this pie called a church. And in many ways, it's backwards. In many ways, we go back to Acts chapter 2 and it's who the church was becoming. They were in large group and small group and they were house to house and they were feasting on the word and feasting with each other and God gave the increase and God began to grow. In his book, Carpe Diem Redeemed, Oz Guinness says there's three ways we redeem time. One, we walk before God. Two, we read the signs of the times and three, we serve God's purpose in our generation. So the rest of this talk will be about walking before God. Uh, next week, we'll look at the signs of the times. I'm going to do like a prophecy update. I kind of do this every year, and I've got really good stuff for that. And then finally, we'll look at our own individual lives in this church. How are we going to serve God in our generation? So what precedes vision? What precedes vision is this idea of walking with God. We read it here in Ephesians. We walk in love. We walk in grace. We walk in wisdom. The word walk means a lifestyle. Your life right now, as you sit here, is the sum of the choices and decisions you've made. Now, we've all been dealt a hand, right? No one was responsible for what you were born into. No one's responsible for the curves life has thrown at you. 
But your life is mainly, for better or worse, the sum total of your choices and decisions. You're either letting life happen or you're making it happen. When we talk about walking with God, the psalmist was blessed because there's things he doesn't do. He doesn't walk in the counsel of the ungodly. The counsel of the ungodly is what we hear from our dominant culture, which will always be about desire, money, fame, and fortune, right? That's about all it's going to be. Uh, Tim Keller does a phenomenal thing with this. He talks about, like, 30 or 40 years ago, most people had a traditional identity. Like, you know, I really want to make my parents proud or my neighborhood, so I'll be a fireman or a cop or a preacher. Um, now we switched over in the millennial world to a modern identity, right? Like Elsa from Frozen has a modern identity. She's free and she can do whatever she wants and she's throwing off the weight of the past and her family and the traditional identity and I'm free to be me, right? And she can be whatever she wants. And Tim Keller argues the traditional identity, which we think was the right identity, isn't it? And neither is the modern identity because there's a gospel identity. What does God want you to be? What does God want you to spend your life doing? So we can't listen to the counsel of ungodly. We can't stand in the path of sinners. We can't live their lifestyles. We can't do the things they do. Ephesians just told us we shouldn't even say the things they do in secret, in darkness. We should be moving farther and farther away from those things. And our delight, listen to this, should be in the law of the Lord. We meditate in day and night. I think the, the first step to clear vision in our walk with God is the spiritual disciplines. If someone's saying, wait a second, time out, spiritual disciplines, I don't like it already. It has the word discipline in it. Well, so does disciple, right? You're a disciplined follower of Christ. There is a joy in growing closer to God. Um, Paul Clark, who is a real good friend of mine. Paul's been here many times. Paul's in his 60s. Uh, Paul was a hippie dropping acid who got radically saved in a room by himself who, believe it or not, and I'm not joking, was part of the start of the Jesus movement and contemporary Christian music. One of the best guitar players around, songwriter. Paul has eaten organic almost his whole life. Like when he's traveling with me, I'll go get a cheesesteak, he eats like a green pepper, right? That's how, that's how organic he is. And I got word that uh, he was in intensive care. And I called him Christmas Day. I'm like, Paul, what the heck is going on? He goes, Bob, I died twice. I literally coded twice. And um, I had this hereditary thing in my heart and whatever medicine they used and yada, yada, yada. And he said, I was in that hospital five days. He said, when I finally could use my cell phone, I was calling anybody I know, would know and said, just read me scripture. I'm so hungry. I just want to hear scripture. I just want to hear anything about God. So that's a hunger and somebody who's walked hard after God his own life. John Ortberg said the spiritual disciplines are any activity that, help, that can help me gain power to live a life as Jesus, not only taught, but modeled. Jesus is the busiest person I, I've ever seen, right? He's casting out demons, he's feeding 5,000, he's teaching disciples who aren't the apostles, they're the apostles, and he's trying to get his work done through guys who don't even know what they're doing. And yet, as you look at Jesus' life, there was no busyness, right? One minute he's alone with the Father, the next minute he's walking on water, calming disciples down. Like, he had this perfect balance. So the spiritual disciplines, the common ones, are prayer and Bible reading and fasting. Um, 
Some of the other ones are solace, silence and solitude and Sabbath. My son Mike left on New Year's Day for a three-day silence retreat. Uh, he did this last year, and his idea was tithing is where we give God 10% of our money, knowing that God will resupply. And so he wanted to give God his time and wondering if God would resupply that. And last year when Mike did this, uh, it didn't happen on the retreat, but God kind of dropped a value in his heart. Uh, he's young, he has his own business, he doesn't have a wife or kids yet, so he has a little bit of money, and when you have a little bit of money, people ask you for money, right? People in ministry ask you for money. And so a lot of people would ask Mike for money, and God gave Mike this value uh, just for him that he would only give to ministries where he could physically serve, kind of level the playing field. So he gives to a church in New York where he serves, he gives here where he serves, uh, there's a ministry in the Bronx where he serves, and he was asked to be on the board for Water is Basic, the ministry that Steve Ruiz has to the South Sudan. Steve's been here many times. So Mike joins the board of Steve Ruiz, and that's his volunteerism, and then he finds out as a board member, once in your time on the board, you must go to the South Sudan. And if you know anything about the South Sudan, it is a high-conflict area. So Mike jumps on a plane in JFK, flies to Kenya. They drive to Uganda, spend three days in Uganda, and then they go to one of these airfields that's like a grass runway to fly to South Sudan. And the pilot flies in, and he says to my son, Mike, how would you like to sit in the co-pilot seat? And Mike's like, yeah, I've never done that. It's really cool. And he says, where have you come from? The guy goes from the Congo, and he said, well, there's a worship leader in our church from the Congo, and from everything I read, that's a really bad place. Uh, what are some of the, like, Worst places you go. And the guy goes, where I'm taking you. <laughs> he said, in fact, the minute you get off, wheels up and I'm out of there. And I'm like, Mike, thank God you told me this after the fact. Oh, my goodness gracious. And the point I'm trying to make is Mike didn't wake up on January 1st, get a cup of coffee and say, God, here I am, like Moses, on Mount Sinai, hand me a vision for my life. It doesn't work that way. Uh, Mike took time to be with God, began to walk out his life, and by living through values, God dropped this vision in. See, that's how it works. Something always precedes vision. And as we begin to walk with God, he makes it clearer and clearer. Last year, about this time, is when I start pushing Scott Harrison's book, Thirst. And if you don't know Scott, he was a nightclub promoter, probably the premier one in New York, and kind of fizzled out, numbed out, uh, and got radically saved. And he decided to do something many people in the Bible had done. He went on a ship called Mercy Ships, where they just traveled the world ministering to people that are sick. And he used that as a time of decompression. And guess what God did? Gave him a vision. He would see the lack of clean drinking water around the world. And came back and started charity water. Scott didn't wake up on a New Year's Day. God, give me the tablets. God's like, yes, start charity water. Martin Luther never woke up on January 1st and God said, start the Reformation, right? These people walked deeply with God and then God revealed it over time. The scripture here says that we can redeem the time, not as fools, but as wise, understanding what the will of the Lord is. See, this is the one thing we have in our toolbox that nobody has, it's called wisdom. James says the wisdom that comes from above is it's, it's peaceable, it's pure, you know it's God. It just, it lingers there. You can't turn away from it. 
This wisdom has carried believers for centuries, has created the Western world. I've been talking a lot about that. Oxford University's motto is Psalm 27.1, the Lord is my light. Can you believe that? Harvard University, 100 years ago, when you were given the student handbook, said, let every student be plainly instructed and earnestly pressed to consider well the main end of his life and studies. Listen to this, to know God and Jesus Christ, which is eternal life and the foundation of all knowledge and wisdom. 100 years ago, how far we have moved. James says, if any of you, any of you, not Martin Luther and all the big shots, if any of you, if I lack wisdom, ask of God and he will grant it. The point I'm trying to make is there's always something that precedes vision. And, and I've always believed in this. Look, when I'm looking at life, right, and I'm like you, I want to know the destination as much as you do. I always look at it this way. What do the scriptures say? Scriptures say here, say I should walk with God. Great. What do trusted advisors say? What are, the community I live in, what are they saying? What's the Holy Spirit saying? And then something evolves and it just keeps coming back and you know it's God. And there's this self-discovery where you say, yeah, this is why I was put on the planet. For some of you, I was put on the planet to serve. Not to lead, but to serve. Some of you were put on the planet to help. To lift somebody else's arms. Some of you were put on the planet to show extreme mercy to people. There's all different ways this rolls out. Sometimes a vision comes to you through a holy discontent. This is what happened to me, right? I often wonder when I got saved, if I was plugged into a really good church, would I have ever started a church? I don't know. But I know this, when I got saved in Delaware County, there was, and I'm not, you know, I'm not railing on anybody, but I couldn't find a church. Couldn't find a church where Jesus was lifted up and they taught the word of God. Uh, this is what happened to Nehemiah. Nehemiah was the cupbearer to the king. He's living in exile, but Artaxerxes is the king. He's the cupbearer. That's like being like head of state. He's got a pretty cushy job. And then one day somebody comes back and says, here's what Jerusalem looks like. This promise God gave to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, it's in ruins. And Nehemiah prays and God breaks his heart and he has a holy discontent. And you know the story, they go back and rebuild the wall. And eventually the temple's rebuilt. Sometimes you're pressed into a vision. Uh, we looked at Mary the last week of 2019, right? Here's a girl living in Nazareth. She has no idea of a calling. No one gave her a 2020 vision on January 1st. One day the angel comes and says, Mary, this is your time. Esther was for such a time as this. See, I believe all of a sudden vision can be pressed upon you where you know this is it. One of the things I do for a hobby is coach basketball. And coaches have all different philosophies and theories in the way they coach. Some are motivator teachers, some are X and O guys, like run great plays, etc. I'm more the motivator teacher. I'm not a real big XO guy. You know, I know you have to have plays and, so, and such. But at my practices, I would always make my players play three on three. Because to me, basketball was like jazz. If you could play three on three, you're ready for anything. Listen, you're ready for when the play breaks down. How many of us in this room are ready when the play breaks down? Lisa Meredith, who was on staff here for 15 years, gave me a hug on Christmas Eve two years ago and never came back. She was here this year in a wheelchair, debilitating illness. She's still the most joyful person I know. I'm sure she has down days, never when I call her. 
She goes, you know, I knew God had a change coming for me. I didn't know it was this. They say you can tell a lot about somebody when pressure comes, when the plan changes, when the play changes. Life's like jazz. The plan's going to change. The rug's going to be pulled out. Look at Job. Look at, you know, we can talk about a thousand characters in Scripture. But there's things that God presses upon us. There's things that we walk in. And, and one of the things I love about the Sabbath, and God put it in, you know, this isn't like go away January 1st. Look, there's a Sabbath every week. Now, we're Christians, so it's not Saturday. It can be any time we want. But we need times of rest and recalibration for this reason. You know, we like to say the past is over. And sometimes we quote Bible verses where Paul said, I forget the things that are past and I press on. Paul wasn't saying erase the past. Paul was saying, I don't look backwards in the terms of regret. But he did look backwards. Because the Bible says to remember the old past. Now, it talks about God making a new way. But there's something about the old way. God wants us to remember the past. Paul three times talks about his conversion. Um, I always marvel when God gave Moses the Ten Commandments. He said, I am the God who brought you out of Egypt. He doesn't say, I'm the God who created the world. That would have been impressive, right? Moses, I could do anything in your life. I created the world. He said, I am the God that brought you out of Egypt, Moses. In other words, if I could bring you out of Egypt, I got this. Last week I was uh, preaching at Coastal Christian. And I was staying with my wife's cousin who has a house church. And when we got there, he said, oh, we got some bad news last week. My 32-year-old son has rectal cancer. And I'm like, oh, Dan. I, oh. He goes, Bob, you know, it's hard to hear, and we've been processing it, but we have this little uh, hut down by the water. And my wife and I have been praying, and you know what we heard God say? I got this. And he said, friends of ours came over a couple days ago, and they said, Dan, I have a word for you. God told us he's got this. And I don't know how that's going to work out, and maybe it works out well, and maybe it doesn't, this side of heaven. But that was Moses hearing from God, Moses, I got this. If you walk close with me, you can get through this. The idea of redeeming the time is to understand the author of time. To understand his purposes, not only in the past, but in the future. I want to end on this idea of capacity. We don't talk a lot about it. If you ask the average person, the average person would say, oh, I just struggle to do my own life. Listen, God has given us a lot of capacity. He's given us capacity to serve him. He's given us capacity to take care of our life. He's given us capacity for others. Listen, raising a family, think of all that capacity. And then beyond that, you can even do more in your generation. That's a lot of capacity. And the reason I know there's a lot of capacity is when I look at our culture, how much entertainment there is. Uh, having a bunch of people over today, so I had to go to Costco yesterday. And I've never been to Costco on a Saturday. You can't even get in there. I mean, if there's a revival somewhere, it's at Costco. I wish our churches looked like Costco. And I'm thinking, why are all these people here? Aren't they broke? Didn't they buy enough over the holidays? What are they doing here? And they're walking out with big TVs. I'm like, Christmas just passed. You really need another TV? And you realize people have a lot of capacity. There was a time when I was 
working full-time, pastoring this church, raising kids, working overtime, coaching. Now you look back and say, how do you do it? And you do it through the Spirit of God. And I'm not talking about busyness. I'm talking about capacity. You have way more capacity than you think. And the way to figure it out is to begin to walk with God and do self-discovery. One of the things I want to pray for all of us and pray for myself, because this was kind of a self-discovery for me, is I always had a, an abundance mentality. I always looked at God like he was big. And somehow, maybe getting beaten down over the years, I moved to a scarcity mentality. It's one of the things I learned from my sabbatical. I was so blessed when I read Mark Batterson's book. Mark's a friend of mine, a wonderful author. And uh, Mark said that in the parable of the talents, Jesus talked about an abundance mentality. He said a scarcity mentality operates out of fear than faith. And he said it nets greed rather than gratitude. Think about this. It's playing not to lose, which is why it's satisfied with breaking even. A scarcity mentality would never give up five loaves and two fish, which is why it never experiences miracles of multiplication. A scarcity mentality thinks in terms of addition and subtraction, so five plus two is always seven. If you allow a scarcity mentality to take root, which it did in me, you become like a servant who buried his talent in the ground. You become a cul-de-sac of blessing, and the blessing dead ends with you. Simply put, enough will never be enough. An abundancy mentality, on the other hand, recognizes that everything is from God and all belongs to God. That's the beginning of double blessing. It's the understanding that every good and perfect gift comes from God, which means we don't own anything. In fact, anything you think you own probably owns you. Even your talent is on loan from God. God is the one who gives us the ability to do great things. God is the one who gives us clear vision and purpose. And that's what I want to walk in this year. I pray for you. I pray for our church. Church is an interesting thing. It's this collective of people who have been asked to lift each other's arms together and walk a path. And we lose some and we add some. But for right now, we're all here. Here's how I want to end. I want to have you all stand. And I don't ask you guys to do a lot. This is easy, painless. Just for a couple minutes as I pray for you, I just want you to raise your hands. Because raising your hands is a sign of surrender, right? Like if somebody pulled a gun on you today, raise your hands. It's a sign that God, you know, listen, you want a scripture? Paul said, I wish that men everywhere would raise holy hands. It's a sign that God, you made these hands and I'm reaching to you and God, would you pour out vision and blessing and clear direction that I might receive it?